everybody, and welcome to WChat. Today, we're very excited to have two amazing guests, Dr. Aisha Wagner and Dr. Maura Rashid. Today, we're going to talk about reproductive justice, including what it means, why it is important, and how to incorporate it into everyday practice when discussing various, various topics such as birth control. We just want to give our listeners a little background about the people we are speaking with. And we would really like it if you would talk a little bit about yourself. So if you could give our listeners um, a little bit of information about your background, your education and training, and your practice setting, like where you practice and the type of patients you serve, and anything else you would like us to know. So we'll start with Dr. Rashid. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm very happy to be here today. So I first got involved with reproductive health back during college. Um, I started working at Planned Parenthood as a counselor there. And at that location, we served a really large immigrant community. So I got to work with a really diverse patient population. And that's when I first really started seeing health disparities firsthand. Um, I went to medical school at Tufts University in Boston. And I also got an MP at that time. During medical school, I got really involved with human rights work and did a lot of my rotations in underserved communities, including homeless communities and immigrant communities. And then for after medical school for residency, I went to UCSF um, and worked at San Francisco General Hospital. And that was a program in family medicine with a focus on urban underserved populations. So we did. We had a really diverse patient population that included um, poor communities, immigrants, trans, transgender patients, refugees, all different kinds of people, and also had a strong focus on reproductive health training. And then this past year, I moved to New York and did a fellowship with the Reproductive Health Access Project. And that is an organization that focuses on bringing in reproductive health care and integrating it into family medicine clinics. And as well, we had a lot of um, training on how to be physician advocates and now I'm working um, at a federally qualified health center. So again, keeping the focus on underserved communities. And now I'm just looking for jobs within reproductive health in the San Francisco area. Awesome. That's a lot of training. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of really good work. So thank you, Dr. Rashid. Um, what about you, Dr. Wagner? So Dr. Rashid and I did, we have a lot of overlap, but as far as the beginning goes for me in my involvement in women's health, probably it began just before medical school when I was working at an abortion clinic in San Francisco. And similar to her experience, we saw a very diverse patient population, you know, different financial backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, everything you can imagine. And I think that was the first time again, similar to Dr. Rashid, where I realized that there were so many women coming from so many different places and they all had such different stories to tell. After that, I finally convinced myself to go to medical school and I went to Keck which is University of Southern California, so down in Los Angeles, and made a point to only work in underserved communities there. So Los Angeles Community Hospital, um, our general hospital, was our home base. And I did a lot of work during that time with homeless populations and with incarcerated youth. And again, just gaining more of appreciation for people's stories and how I would say infrequently we get to hear those stories and how infrequently they get to tell their stories. And so that was really important to me in choosing a residency program. I went to residency with Dr. Rashid <laughs> um, and ditto to what she said. We were very privileged to be, I think, in such a community-based residency program and have such great support when it came to reproductive health. Uh, so we both learned a lot. And then we both did a fellowship in New York last year. And that was really a wonderful experience uh, just to live in a different place. My practice was in Harlem. So again, underserved, really diverse population. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And then right now I'm part of the Physicians for Reproductive Health. Leadership Training Academy, which Dr. Rashid also did last year, which takes evidence-based medicine and focuses on advocacy for uh, reproductive health and reproductive rights. 
oh yes, what am I doing now? <laughs> the same thing she is. <laughs> um, also working at a federally qualified health center in the Bay Area where we see a very, very diverse population. Do you both work in the same center? Maybe. No. <laughs> no, we work for this. We work for the same organization, but we don't. We work in different clinics. Yes. Okay. Didn't know if you were seeing each other every day or. We're just following each other around, basically. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That sounds fun. Okay, so another question that we like to ask all of our guests is, what informs your perspective or your practice? Like, what do you? Why do you do what you do and what's valuable to you? Um, You can start, Dr. Wagner. Oh, sure. This is a really tricky question. And it's interesting because I think, uh, especially in doing the Leadership Training Academy, it comes up a lot because I really don't think there is a single moment that I can point to that kind of explains why I've ended up doing what I'm doing and why I love it. I think that it kind of just goes back to core values. And my core values are really that, you know, everyone comes from the same place and that we're kind of all in this rat race or whatever you want to call it together. And that it's our job, you know, if we have the opportunity to be in places of power or positions of power, that we should really use that to uh, lift up the people who have not had that opportunity. And so, I can't imagine working with a different population other than the underserved population. Um, They have so many stories to share, and we really need to work on putting the spotlight on them and making sure that we're supporting them the way that we do other populations. Great. Thanks. And what about you, Dr. Rashid? I feel very passionately about a lot of social justice issues, but during medical school, one of my mentors um, gave a talk and told us to think about what makes us the most angry and to focus our career efforts towards that cause. So for me, that was the injustice in reproductive health. And I think that I've always wanted to go into medicine and there are a lot of different levels of kind of access to care. And when I see somebody I know that their health is informed by everything else in their lives. And for too many people, that means discrimination and violence and racism and lack of access. And so those are kind of the principles that drive me and trying to give people the best care that I can. Well, after talking with you both or hearing more about your backgrounds, I think it seems like a very natural fit that you would be very good talking about reproductive justice. This, I'm assuming this will be an easy some topic for, you, for both of you to talk about. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. And like we said, today we're going to discuss reproductive justice. And I'm sure many of our listeners might be asking, what does this have to do with everyday practice or communication? And I know Stephanie and I both previously understood reproductive justice as more of a policy or a political issue and not necessarily an issue that clinicians could include in their practice. We both have stood corrected since talking with both of you and so we would like to share your knowledge and expertise about this. So why don't we start out just by dissecting what uh, reproductive justice is and what it means. Okay, I can take that one. (laughs) Um, And then Dr. Rashid, obviously chime in. So I first just want to acknowledge that, you know, although we are talking about this subject, we definitely are not the experts in this subject because reproductive justice was really born from grassroots organizations and not from the medical community. So I just kind of want to throw that out there because I think it's really important to acknowledge that this work has been done long before the medical community even got involved, although I am really happy that we're becoming more involved right now. So Reproductive justice, so that term was actually born in 1994, just to give people a little bit of background. And it came out of an organization of women who really started talking after a conference in Cairo, started talking about reproductive health and how that relates to your socioeconomic status. And so they were really, their question was, you know, we've been talking about choice and all of this for so many days now, but what we really haven't talked about is access. And if people don't have access to these choices, then they don't have those choices at all. So Sister Song is a really lovely organization, and I would encourage anyone listening, if they're interested in this afterwards, to check out their website. But they are really the ones that 
were the first grassroots organizations or one of the first grassroots organizations to really talk about reproductive justice in this reproductive justice framework. And one of their definitions of who we include when we talk about reproductive justice is um, people of color, low-income and uninsured women, indigenous women, immigrant women, women with disabilities, and people whose sexual expression is not respected. And I really love that definition because I think it gives a really wonderful picture of who we're talking about and really takes the focus away from, you know, more, I'm putting quotes, I know you guys can't see me, but quotes, (laughs) mainstream women, which is really, you know, middle and upper class white women. And it's not to say that obviously that struggle isn't real and important, but it's really, again, to lift up the voices of people who we don't listen to. Yeah, and I would. Um, I think it's a. It's really a combination of reproductive rights and social justice. And Aisha and I um, spent the last year training and giving talks um, at different reproductive health venues and teaching residents. And one of the things we always talk about is barriers to care and how many barriers women and people have to go through just to come into our offices. And, you know, it's a it's a very long extensive list that which Asia touched a lot on, but it ranges from um, barriers that have to do with age and race to gender identity to religion to income to the ability to take time off work to go see a doctor. And so this is kind of the bridge that we see when we're seeing patients of bringing kind of thinking about people's kind of social, political, economic, racial status and bringing that into the exam room and thinking about how this person got into our office, what they had to go through to get there and how that kind of changes the way that we talk with them about their reproductive health. Yeah. And it's really basically centering the conversation and what is at the core of this conversation is really human rights and how exactly everything that Dr. Rashid is talking about, how that affects our human rights. So I think when Nicole and I first spoke with you and you talked about reproductive justice just over the phone, at least for me, I had known about this this concept and obviously, you know, try to work, you know, individually sort of understanding policy and the political aspects of reproductive justice and never really, I don't know, maybe thought about it in this. How do you incorporate that into your practice? Um, You know, a lot of the times I think as a provider myself, you, you know, think of these things as barriers that you really maybe can't do anything about. And sometimes that can get a little bit overwhelming. And that, so my, I guess my question is, what, why do you think it, first is important to incorporate the principles of reproductive justice into a provider's everyday practice? So I think that I want to touch a little bit just to answer that question kind of more comprehensively, just on also the kind of history that immigrant women and women of color have faced in this country as far as reproductive health. And so A lot of communities come into our offices kind of skeptical of medical care and for many reasons, but particularly with reproductive health, you know, there has been, for example, in the throughout the 20th century, there was forced sterilization of women, particularly women of color and immigrants. And that's actually still happening as most as recent as 2010 in California with incarcerated women. And and then, you know, there was previously incentivizing certain types of birth control. So Norplant was one that women and teens, low income um, women and teens were offered social benefits to get certain types of contraception like Norplant. And then even further today with the Hyde Amendment. So that is basically an amendment that bans federal funding for abortion. So this disproportionately affects low-income women and women of color and immigrants who rely on Medicaid. Um, And I think that that history is just really important when you're thinking about how this applies to patients who are sitting in front of you. Um, Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people don't want to access or are skeptical to access care just because of this kind of fear that has been born out of the history. Yeah, and I think also to add to that is we... Whether or not we realize this when we're going through, you know, medical school and then residency and fellowship and training, that this is really pervasive 
throughout medicine. One of the, he's called like the godfather, the father of gynecology, Dr. Sims. He has a statue, a statue that's erected in Manhattan. And this is a man who practiced and experimented on slaves, on women. And we don't talk about that history uh, at all, I would say enough, but we really don't talk about it at all. So it's really important to understand that there are a lot of things that are, we think are like so pure in medicine that really have this really terrible history of, like Dr. Rashid said, incentivizing policies, coercion, and experimentation. You know, what's interesting is that you both bring up the his, the historical context of reproductive care. And we just recently recorded a podcast on unconscious bias. And this was also a very important part to understanding unconscious bias and, and kind of knowing where our bias and all these things come from on both the perspective of a patient and a provider. So it's interesting that this that this also has the same roots with reproductive justice and also feeds into unconscious bias. So it's just interesting to see the overlap. No, I think that's a great connection. I was thinking the same thing, Nicole. Yeah, I was just going to say that that's part of the point, right, is that we can't really talk about one thing without talking about another because it's all, you know, we talk a lot now (laughs) about intersectionality, but it's true, like everything is related. And I think you cannot have this conversation about reproductive justice without talking about bias, unconscious bias in particular. And I think that that point also extends to why this is so important for patients on more of a day-to-day and practical level is because patients' lives outside of the office influence their health a lot more than any one thing that we do in the office. And so we have to kind of understand the perspective that they're coming from and all of this very, at times, loaded history, you know, and a lot of these things that are still going on today um, in understanding health disparities and, you know, what exactly is going on with each individual patient and knowing that, you know, treatment options for one person or contraception for one person may be undesirable or impossible for another person. So this kind of extends maybe into the next question that I have, which is how do you incorporate reproductive justice principles into your practice? Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) And I think that there are certain easy answers, but I think it's also difficult. I think that, you know, and we'll go into more detail about specific things that we can do, but I think in a whole, it's kind of taking a step back and recognizing like institutional racism and all of these things that again are so pervasive throughout medicine that we haven't really paid attention to or talked about openly. And so I think that the first thing is kind of educating ourselves about what happened and really about the contextual background like we just talked about, and then kind of moving forward to see what we can do on a day-to-day basis when we are in exam rooms with our patients. Yeah, and I think just kind of, I know in a day-to-day it can be hard, but thinking about really I kind of touched on this already, but what patients had to go through to get to our offices. So, you know, if a patient is late or if a patient isn't, you know, following a treatment plan or disagrees with you, just kind of taking a step back and having compassion for them and their story and kind of all of the factors that brought them to that place. No, I was just going to say that I kind of use the example of asking patients who have diabetes to take insulin and then they come in and they haven't taken it and we get really frustrated and we think they don't care about themselves or they don't care about what we have to say. And in reality, this person didn't have a refrigerator to put their insulin in. And so I think it really takes... And it's hard to do, right? Especially in primary care, we're so rushed, but it really just takes taking that moment to step back and think, what are the things that what are the barriers for this patient and what do they really want from us? It's interesting you bring that up because I know um, in Stephanie and I, when in some of our coursework, we talked about noncompliance and how that's really a bad word to label mm-hmm. patients as noncompliant. And I'm just wondering if maybe you can discuss a little bit more about the intersection of reproductive justice and labeling a patient as noncompliant. 
Yeah, I mean, Maura used the example of Norplant. Um, so Norplant was approved by the FDA in 1990, and it was basically a bunch of rods that went under a woman's arm in her skin to prevent pregnancy, and it was really effective. Within two days of this FDA approval, the Philadelphia Inquirer had an article that essentially um, said, is this a tool to fight black poverty? And then within two years, there was all of this proposed legislation, like Maura talked about before, you know, that basically was linking using Norplants to think for other incentives, like we're going to, you know, lower the number of years you're incarcerated or the number of years you're on probation if you do this. So I think that when you understand that, then you can kind of begin to understand where people might be coming from. Like if they come into the office and you run through the gamut of birth control options and they really don't want the Nexplanon, which is a rod that goes into their arm because their grandmother had that and, you know, it was a terrible experience for her, um, was coerced into have it, or maybe she went to a doctor's office and they refused to remove it. There are, there are a variety of reasons that someone might not want that option. And then I think also, and this might be a different conversation, but there's also understanding that there's a lot of ambivalency for someone when women when it comes to pregnancy. And so not everyone is going to want to either A, get pregnant or B, not get pregnant. There is an in-between. And so really learning to appreciate that. Yeah, I think this comes up, this kind of issue of non-compliance, which isn't really a word that I use. Um, but this, I've seen it used by other physicians very extensively. And I hear kind of judgments towards patients all the time with um, respect to this. It comes up a lot with unintended pregnancy and this kind of idea that women and patients are non-compliant with their birth control because they are you know, lazy or making bad decisions or things like that. And whenever I hear this, I do try to talk to people about like what we've been talking about, which is all of the barriers that or kind of thought processes that would go into a person's ability to take or not take their birth control. And I think with patients, it's it's a it's a really important conversation to have, but it is kind of a fine line between giving patients the information that they need about birth control and trying to like convince them to take one type over the other. Um, and that's something that I've become really aware of in myself and my own counseling over the last year, especially. So getting kind of into the nitty gritty of this word of non-compliance or, or the staff members or that might sort of pass judgment on a patient's about not doing such and such behavior. Can you talk a little bit about you know, using reproductive justice principles and getting sort of to that root cause of, as a provider, understanding the barriers that a patient may face. Because I think that sometimes is really hard for providers to do, to get to that understanding, and then in order to sort of assist them in that or empower them. Yeah, so I think that one of, I know it sounds kind of simple, but one of the easiest things to do is to ask patients if they come in and let's say that they don't want any of the birth control options that you've discussed, asking them why. And I think that that question can be immensely informative, both in helping you dispel any myths that they might have, which is very common. And we have to acknowledge that there's just, you know, misinformation out there. And we, we do have to educate patients on kind of the correct efficacy and things like that of methods. But also you get into some of these issues of like the logistics of what patients day to day lives look like, you know, what their income looks like, what their um, transportation to get to a pharmacy or to get to an appointment looks like. I think last year um, during fellowship, I had a patient who said that she basically wanted an IUD, but didn't want an IUD. And so that was a conversation that was very confusing to me. And basically, after asking her kind of about it, she told me that she wanted something really effective, but she didn't like, as Aisha mentioned, she didn't like the idea of having something in her body that she couldn't control. So in order to get the IUD taken out, if she decided she wanted to start trying to get pregnant, she would have to kind of figure out how to get back to the doctor. Um, and that included thinking about childcare that included thinking about transportation and that included thinking about her insurance access um, in addition to, I'm sure, many other things. But I think having really frank conversations with patients and just trying not to judge their, their decisions is a really good place to start. Yeah, and I would 
also add, like Maura was talking about, I think one thing that we really need to highlight is removal of these things. So with the long-acting reversible contraception, so we're talking about IUDs and the next planon that's placed in the arm. This is something, and IUDs we can talk about <laughs> separately because we actually, you can do self-removal, but this involves someone coming back to the office and having to ask the provider to remove this device. And it's difficult. And I think that, you know, we, we talk a lot about shared decision-making when it comes to counseling for contraception. So finding out what a woman would like talking about, you know, do you want a period or do you not want a period? Are you hiding this method from anyone, which is, you know, especially important when we talk about young adults or when we talk about um, people who are involved in intimate partner violence. But I think we really do need to talk about removal and kind of be conscious of our own biases when it comes to that. I uh, Last year, I had a woman come in, a young black woman who I had placed a Nexplanon in, and she came back to me about a year later and wanted it out. And she was just like, I, you know, I don't really like the bleeding pattern. And so I, you know, started down this whole thing of, well, have we tried this for you? Or we have we tried this for you? And about, you know, five minutes into this conversation, I was just catching myself and I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I trying to convince her to keep this? And she said to me, frankly, she was like, you know what, thank you for going through this. But I came in knowing in my head that I wanted to get this removed and I just want it out. And so I think, you know, even for like Maura and I who are fairly conscious about these things, you can get trapped in this kind of cycle where you think you're doing the best for a patient and you're really just not listening to them. And we just really need to be careful um, with these underserved, underrepresented populations because they have not been listened to for their entire existence. No, and I think that's a great example because when I even think about myself and, you know, it really comes down to a lot of it, we need to check our privilege and you know what are our backgrounds as providers and how does that influence the care or our personal practice because when I think of IUD you know I'm like oh yeah put it in there I don't want to think about it that's not a big deal like no I don't want kids and you know it's easy for us to say that because it's like put it in that's it don't forget about it. But when it comes to a, another population, when you begin to understand the historical background, and I remember, I think I had read the an article about that that talked about with some populations, their reproductive selves may be the only things that they have some autonomy over. And when you put in an IUD or a, a LARC, they lose the autonomy they have over their reproductive selves because now if they wanted to get pregnant they couldn't and now they have to rely on someone else like a provider to remove it and so I want to say it was a a specific study looking at maybe there was a disparity between the use of LARCs between populations and I I just thought that was a really interesting perspective And, and until you read about this stuff and make the conscious effort to become aware of it you just don't think about that because you're kind of your own privilege sort of yeah. puts blinders on you and so sorry to interrupt i no, think not just not just privilege too like pe- being providers we inherently are at least somewhat scientific people and i think we also in addition to having this context of privilege also think about the data and we think that, okay, IUDs and Nexplanons are really effective methods, which they are. And I think that that also informs us wanting everybody to be on them. And I think we just have to continually acknowledge that efficacy is not the most important thing for a lot of people and that all of these other factors and the context that they come from is more important. And in addition to what Aisha was saying that, you know, not getting pregnant for a lot of women is not the most important factor when they're choosing or not choosing contraception. And I think as providers, we're just, there's, there was this huge swing towards kind of pushing larks on people. And now we're kind of realizing that maybe we were pushing them on people who didn't want them and, and kind of now coming to terms that that's a co- kind of a coercive practice. Yeah. I mean, in medical school for both of us, I remember that's what you did. You either your strategy was you offered a lark up top when you started out or you finished with a big bang with the lark method when you were doing your contraceptive counseling. And it was a defeat if someone came in and asked for their method to be removed when they still didn't want to get pregnant. 
Yeah, I think it still is like that in practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not in yours, but I've, I see that a lot. And also, I, I hear comments, too, from staff like, do they know how expensive those are? That, you know, discomfort or whatever side effect they're having is sort of moot when you have to pay $1,000 for it or... And I actually, that's, that's a wonder, I think that's a wonderful point because that does happen all the time where we're like, oh, but the money we're wasting. One thing that I do is I reassure patients, I say, try it. If you don't like it at any point, at any stage of the game, if you come back tomorrow and you're not happy, we'll do something else. And really making sure that they understand that they are in control. So, yeah, I think that's a really important point that you just brought up. So how do you combat, you know, maybe someone else says that that offhanded comment, like, do they know how expensive it is? How do you as a provider deal with or talk with other providers who maybe say things like that? It definitely depends on the context. There are sort of teachable moments and not teachable moments. And unfortunately, in the middle of a hectic clinic day is often not necessarily the time to like have like a sit down chat with people. But I think one really important way is just modeling the way that you talk to patients and talk about patients. So I think there's a tendency when patients aren't around that people say things that they wouldn't say in front of them. And I think that just if you're in an office or in a training environment, just modeling the way that you talk about patients and, you know, not making those comments. And then explicitly for people who are involved in training others. So Aisha and I have both been involved in training medical students, uh, residents, nurse practitioner students and nurse practitioners um, and other providers. And so last year we started having, like before we got into any of the clinical aspects of procedures and putting in larks, we would have talks about kind of language and about counseling on contraception and sort of Asia touched on it, but kind of what questions to ask so that you're not just pushing your own agenda on patients. So like asking about their day to day lives about, you know, what their priorities are as far as contraception, things like that. I think having those kinds of conversations with peers and staff who you hear saying kind of inappropriate or discriminatory things are really difficult. And it's something that I'm still working on. But one thing that I have done a couple of times now that I found to be somewhat effective is actually talking about the barriers to care that people face and kind of the possible reasons why somebody might want their birth control out or might not be kind of going along with the plan that you had come up with. Yeah. And I also think that what I usually say is I'll say something like, oh, you know, right now I, or I'll to pull from the fellowship, you know, like when I was in fellowship, we learned about this, or right now I'm really practicing, you know, looking at this from this perspective, you know, even if it's something that I do in my day to day, kind of approaching people like I'm learning, would you like to learn with me? <laughs> which, you know, some people can see right through, but other people can't. And either way, I think that they, it helps give them the message because it is really difficult. You know, when you're in a training environment, that's your job, right? But when you're in an environment talking peer to peer, which actually I hate saying peer to peer, but um, peer to peer, for lack of a better word, I think you do kind of have to find these tricky ways of, instead of calling out, we talk a lot about in in bias, we talk about calling in. So like calling in your peers. And I think acknowledging that none of us are perfect at this. Like there is... Oh, yeah. I know Aisha and I are talking about this and it's something that we talk about a lot and we pre- we also practice a lot because you mess up and then yeah. you say something to a patient and you're like, ugh, I totally just judged them. And then you have to kind of like sit with that and acknowledge it and then try not to do it again. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point is we're always all learning and you can come into this conversation at any level, um, having zero knowledge, having a ton of knowledge, but you're always going to be learning and you're always going to be correcting yourself and having that conversation. Is there a point kind of getting a little bit more in depth than that? Are there certain topics, uh, you know, I want to say trigger, but topics that make it really difficult for you? Or like instances where a patient says something that might make it really difficult for you to sort of keep these principles of reproductive justice in your practice. I personally, I struggle with young adults and that's something that I'm really working on. 
And I think especially when it comes to, you know, young adults deciding that they actually do want to be pregnant and supporting them through that. And so that's something that in the last few years, I'm really working on not putting that judgment or that shame on people because they're going to have so much shame and so much judgment when they go out into the world. They really don't need that from their doctors, right? We're there to support them. And so that's kind of one area that I personally struggle with. But like we were talking about, I think, you know, everything is constantly checking yourself and thinking about what you're saying. Yeah, and sorry to put you on the spot with that question, but I just, I hear so much from providers and I feel like we can connect sort of on these topics, if that makes sense, by being yeah. honest about them. We yeah. These really hard parts for you as a provider to sort of do that non-judgmental, patient-centered, reproductive justice care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I can definitely understand yeah, if a young person wants to get pregnant. So I guess let's unpack that a little bit. So like, what kind of things do you, you know, <laughs> just to give our listeners, you know, I'm sure this is not a unique situation, you know, some tools when they're like, oh, you know, maybe they're thinking, oh, I've so been in that situation, I had no idea what to do. So if you could maybe give some more tangible or kind of some more points of, of how you manage those situations, or what do you say during those situations? I often say, I mean, this, it's really hard depending on like each person's own person, each provider's own personal bias. I often say, kind of tell me more about that and then start the conversation from there. I think that one thing that was really helpful for me because I've always been involved in reproductive health. And so for me, that always kind of meant like contraception, you know, like people either want to be pregnant or they don't. And this past year just for my own evocation. We, so we read an article that talked about kind of ambivalence in pregnancy. And it talked about kind of what Aisha was discussing earlier, that there's this whole spectrum of in-between and that, that women and patients will deal with the pregnancy as it comes. Um, and that for actually quite a few women, like being pregnant or not being pregnant is not like the only option. And so I think that was just really helpful for me to like read about. And it's helped me a lot in conversations with patients. If they are saying that like, yeah, I don't really want any birth control today. Then I'm like, okay, like, cause for me for a long time, that was really uncomfortable. If somebody says like, I don't really want to be pregnant, but I also don't want any birth control. And so now I try to kind of take a step back and just sort of, as you said, unpack it with them a little bit and ask kind of what brought them to that that place and um, see how I can be the best help without, you know, coercing them into what I want them to do. Do you find that when you ask, why do you feel this way, that that garners place for you to stand from? Does that kind of help you? Oh, totally. Because how many times have we all been in the situation where you hear a patient say something and then you just start talking, right? And then like 10 minutes later, they they bring up something that was like you hadn't even thought of. And you're like, well, those last 10 minutes of my time were totally just used for something. And if I had just asked in the first place, like what they meant or, you know, how they came to a decision, I would have been able to have some footing to go from. I think it's also a really good way to be able to educate people on, you know, myths or on things that they they want to know about and maybe don't want to ask. Um, it's just a, it's a really good starting point. Yeah. And I think it also really helps with the trust building in their relationship. And by asking someone where they're coming from, um, especially, you know, underprivileged and underserved women, you're really saying, I respect you and I want to hear what you have to say. So yeah, it's, I think it does open up a whole different world and really can change that patient provider relationship and dynamic. I think that's really good point about what you said about sort of that sometimes as a provider, we sort of go into a spiel that might take 10 minutes and then the patient says something and it kind of negated all that. And I think Nicole and I, through Women's Centered Health, want to sort of make this case that taking the time to really listen to our patients doesn't mean that our appointments are necessarily longer because, you know, obviously the benefit of some of this is building that trusting relationship, positive relationship, which will help everyone. 
but that also maybe you might even save or keep the same amount of time while doing that, um, which is obviously really important too. I think piggybacking on that kind of to lead into a next question is, do you feel that incorporating these principles of reproductive justice, even just asking them, you know, why do you feel this way? Do you feel like that conflicts with short appointment times or being busy or how does that how do those principles fit in with a busy schedule? I think it's actually super helpful when you're running around and you have a chance to just sit down and ask someone how they feel. And I do think, you know, instead of convincing them that they want, I don't know, birth control pills, if you listen to what they really want and you're like, oh, they wanted the NuvaRing the entire time, that's going to save you time, not only in that visit, but also them coming back and being like, I'm not happy with this. So (laughs) I think it's really important. I also wanted to just add kind of for tools that we use um, to incorporate reproductive justice or just incorporate these principles. One thing that I admittedly don't do all the time, but I find to be very helpful is doing that kind of moment outside of the door where before, you know, like your hand goes on the doorknob, you just take a moment, take a deep breath and kind of just clear your mind because I think we're all running around, we're extremely busy, we're forgetting to send medications to the pharmacy or put in whatever referrals, that doing that right before you go in the visit and just really kind of like focusing yourself for that visit can be very helpful when it comes to listening to patients um, and saving time in that patient visit. And I think for some patients, it can be really empowering for them to also research these things on their own for a lot of reasons. Um, Sometimes they just want time. Sometimes they don't want to necessarily talk about it in the office. So we, I often use the Reproductive Health Access Projects website, um, which has a lot of really good information for patients. And another one that I often direct patients to is called Bedsider. Dot org, um, and those are just like really up to date patient sort of patient centered tools. If somebody is like, I want birth control, but not today, or that they just want to kind of like have time to think about it, and you're kind of in a rush. So those are some of the sort of practical tools. Yeah, those are really great. And bedsider.org does focus a lot on reproductive justice, which is really nice. So they have patient perspectives from all different backgrounds, which I think is really important. So yeah, great, great resource. And then Reproductive Health Access Project, obviously we both love, which is good for patients, but it's also really wonderful for providers because there's a lot of detail uh, about different methods and about, you know, how to approach women in the exam room. I think too, I just wanted to touch on um, your question about kind of how these principles kind of change patient interactions. And I think in addition to increasing trust with patients and kind of having a more open relationship, I think for me, it's also made my visits with patients much less frustrating. Because if you're trying to kind of push somebody in one direction or another, and you know, they're not listening, or if they just if you and the patient disagree, that can be like a really hard experience for a provider and really frustrating. And you kind of just start questioning yourself. And I think just being comfortable with that, like you are trying to respect the patient's point of view, um, and that it's not about you, and just kind of like being comfortable with that has made patient visits much easier for me. And kind of stemming on, you know, making interactions easier or not, I don't know. It sounds like you've really been incorporating these principles in your practice for a while. So, but one question I had was, have you noticed a difference in patient interactions as a result of incorporating these practices? And if so, in what ways do you feel they've changed? I have. I really have. I think especially for me practicing in Harlem last year, right after the election, I kind of felt empowered to talk more about race and actually talk about reproductive justice with my patients. So not just, you know, taking this in my own brain and bringing it into the conversation, but out loud having this conversation with both men and women that I was serving. And I, I felt like those interactions, there was just so much more there 
And I felt like I could do a lot more for them. And that didn't necessarily mean prescribing something or putting in a lark. I think a lot of it was just having a conversation, an honest conversation about race and about money and about insurance and all of that. And I think it just, it's, we're, we're all humans, right? And I think we're all really on the same level. And all too often medicine places the doctors or the nurses, you know, up above the patients. And I think really kind of making our ground more level I think just for me brings a lot more, I don't know, to the table or I get a lot more out of it. Dr. Rishi, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, so I agree. I think that these are kind of really big and at times sort of overwhelming concepts. But I do think that when you kind of start to incorporate them day to day, it makes the job as a provider much more fulfilling. I think that we're often focused on insurance and time for appointments and all of these things that bring us away from the patient interactions. And I think that when you're trying to incorporate reproductive justice and really kind of listening to what patients are saying, your relationship with with them are so much more rich and that can really be very fulfilling on a day-to-day level. So I think our last question for both of you then is, what is uh, one thing that you want listeners to take away from this conversation? And what are some maybe practical tips for them? One of my favorite women from the whole like reproductive justice and feminism movement is Audre Lorde. And I'm just going to quote her. (laughs) I'm just going to read it so I don't mess it up. But she said, I am not free while any woman is unfree even when her shackles are very different from my own. And I think for me, this is where I'm coming from, hopefully as a person and hopefully as a doctor, where, like I said at the beginning, we're all in this together and that we all have to lift each other up in order to to be free. And so I think, you know, as far as what can you tangibly, practically do, I think maybe asking women, you know, what they want (laughs) instead of just making assumptions, but really incorporating that into your practice of, you know, it doesn't have to be just when we're talking about reproduction. It can also be when we're talking about hypertension, you know, like, what do you want out of this? What can I do for you is important. So I think that just kind of expanding our own sort of thoughts about reproductive rights to include reproductive justice and just kind of acknowledging how important that is in the exam room because I think like you said at the beginning, these concepts can seem like they're just about politics or about policy and really they affect all of these concepts of kind of racism and inequality um, and justice affect all of our patients every single minute of the day. And just really just kind of focusing on that when you're in, uh, with a patient, especially if you disagree with the patient, um, especially if you disagree with what they want. I think that for practical things, like just, you know, if you are finding yourself in situations, I'm going to just talk about kind of reproductive health, but you know, specifically with contraception counseling or abortion counseling, and you are disagreeing with what the patient is saying, just to take a step back and say, you know, ask them the questions about their own lives and kind of just try to put yourself in their shoes, asking them what is most important for them in terms of contraception, what is the most practical for them in terms of, you know, whatever care you're giving them. And I think that makes a lot of interactions easier with patients. And I think even as simple as when you're doing your contraceptive counseling, questioning, like, what is the order that I'm doing this in? You know, where am I putting the larks? Where am I putting condoms on this list? We had talked about with the Reproductive Health Access Project, we had talked about are we doing this the right way? Maybe we should do like a top down so it's not biased, you know, so you hit the mouth, there's your birth control pill, hit the arm, there's your depo shot and your next one on, you know, but seriously thinking about little things like that, that, you know, maybe you are actually coercing the patient when you didn't even realize you were doing that. And I think Aisha touched on these sort of specific practical questions earlier, but 
I think a lot of this can feel overwhelming. So then you're in the exam room and you're like, okay, well, how do I counsel somebody and make sure they have the information without coercing them and without, you know, not giving them what the facts. And I think a few good questions that we use with patients are, do you care about having a period? Do you care about irregular bleeding? Are you hiding this method for anybody? And, you know, you can kind of go from there. Or are you okay getting pregnant? Yes, that's another very important one. (laughs) Those are great, great practical tips, I think. No, the other thing I was just going to say is read, right? My friend from years ago in college told me that readers are leaders. And I really think it's important to do the most that you can to educate yourself. One really wonderful book on this is called Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts. And it goes over the entire history of, you know, of slavery. It talks about Puerto Ricans and how we experimented on birth control pills with them. It it goes through everything. And it's a really wonderful resource if you don't, you know, if this information is new to you. That book was also recommended by our previous podcast. So hopefully, hopefully our listeners will be getting that book. (laughs) We'll have to make sure to put a link up for it since we've now been double directed to it. And also we would love to include, and I can't remember who was talking about a specific article that they read that really felt like changed their perspective. You know, if you have a couple articles that you yeah. have. The pregnancy ambivalence yes. article. Yeah, I can definitely send we that. We would love to, you know, have those citations so that, that um, our reader or our listeners rather can look them up. Cause, and I feel like you've also touched on this in many ways, this reproductive justice requires you to have an awareness And in order to have that awareness, it does require maybe a little bit of legwork as a provider to read up about this. Yeah, it's, and even, you know, if you don't have time for Killing the Black Body, which is a somewhat dense book, but very well written, you know, go to check out Sister Song. It's, that's something that's pretty easy that just gives you a definition. You know, they've been doing this for a very long time, very user-friendly, and you can get that information, at least an overview of it, in just a few minutes. To say, since you mentioned that, we've actually just started communications and trying to get someone from Sister Song to give us the grassroots perspective of this. So hopefully awesome. within the next awesome. podcast or shortly, we will have someone again from Sister Song since you talked about it and really recommended that we reach out to someone. So we did. So we are we are working on that and hopefully we'll Good. have that for our listeners to get another perspective about this. Since you said, it, you know, it's interesting when you first started out, you said we are not the experts. This isn't something that was from mm-hmm. medicine. This was really something that was grassroots. And you saw obviously a correction on my part for, for saying that. So I think that it would be great to have the grassroots perspective of reproductive justice. We would really both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment today. The the work that you're doing and being on here, we hope really is advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed Dr. Rashid and Dr. Wagner listening to them today, because they were very interesting to us, We will hopefully be recording another podcast with them about word choice and how to create a patient-centered exam. So we hope you stay tuned to hear more from them. And I think that's it, right? Yeah, we're good. (laughs) And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Are you looking for ways to support us? Check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash WCH. And that's Patreon spelled P-A-T. R-E-O-N. And subscribe so that you can help us keep the show going while getting awesome extras. Want to be a part of the show? Go to our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com and send us an email. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and Facebook. <laughs>